Hi, this is Courtney Drake McDonough. I'm the publisher and managing editor of realfoodtraveler.com, a digital culinary travel magazine. And welcome back to another Real Food Traveler podcast. Today I am excited to be in Scottsdale, Arizona for a few days. And I'm holding this podcast with Chef Jeremy Pacheco, who's the executive chef at Lons, a restaurant called Lons, at the Hermosa Inn, which is in Paradise Valley, which is very near Scottsdale. And when I heard about Chef Jeremy and his past, his culinary background, I was so intrigued. I said, I need to meet this man and I need to do a podcast with him because this is certainly what Real Food Traveler is all about, which is experiencing authentic culinary experiences when one goes and travels. So the Hermosa Inn is beautiful. I just got here and I'm going to be spending the night. I'm very excited about that. But you certainly have a wonderful culinary story to tell, not just with the Hermosa, but with Arizona altogether. So welcome, Chef Jeremy. And I'm so glad to be here with you. Let's talk a little bit about your culinary background and just professionally wise how you came to be at the Hermosa Inn? Well to start I started washing dishes at the age of 16 in Tucson Arizona um, worked at uh, Sheraton there really just started as my first job wanting to get a car um, <laughs> my family runs cotton farms down there so I would help out on the farms a little bit in the summer but I started washing dishes and it got into my blood and hasn't gotten out since mm-hmm. so Worked my way through there. I didn't even realize culinary school was a thing, but uh, someone else I worked with went to New York to go to CIA to go to culinary school. And uh, so I looked up culinary schools and found one here in Scottsdale and went to Scottsdale Culinary Institute. That same friend was actually on his externship from CIA at the same time. I was working at the Phoenician told me that the Phoenician was the only place to work. Mm. Um, so I called the chef twice a day <laughs> until he hired me. The culinary school said I probably didn't want to work full-time at the time so while well, going to school. Um, so I asked him for a part-time job, and he was hesitant because they don't usually hire part-time, but I bugged him enough that he hired me mm-hmm. um, and ended up staying at the Phoenician for seven years. So I worked, ended up working full-time while I finished culinary school. Um, as I finished culinary school, I got a sous chef position at the Phoenician. So I basically worked my way from prep cook to chef de cuisine at a three-meal restaurant at the Phoenician. From the Phoenician, it was, after seven years, time for a change. Um, had the opportunity to go to the Wynn and open the Wynn in Las Vegas. Um, so I went out to Las Vegas and opened the Wynn at SW Steakhouse. I was chef de cuisine there. Spent five years at the Wynn. I opened Encore, the second, Steve Wynn's second resort. There as well, I was the chef de cuisine of the three-meal restaurant called Society Cafe at the Encore. Um, when I opened that, I told them I wanted to get back home to Arizona. Um, we were starting to miss it. So it ended up being a year. The job opening here at Hermosa Inn opened up at that time. I jumped on it, was lucky enough to get it, and was executive chef here. That was in 2010. So I spent three and a half years here. The executive chef of the wind talked me into going back out and two years remembered why I left Vegas <laughs> and uh, we had some new owners that bought the property at the Hermosa and um, while I was gone, while I'd gone back and they missed me so uh, they contacted me and asked me to come back and we were able to work it out and I've been back for four years now so that's the brief history of yeah. how I got going in this industry. So, so you, you've always here, you've always been the executive chef? Yes. Okay. 
So now the part that that really intrigued me to want to come here and meet with you, your family history. Talk a little bit about that. I'm a ninth generation from Arizona. Uh, my family came to the States from Spain, um, basically the same time the conquistadors did. Um, worked their way through Mexico and founded in Tubac and Tucson, where I grew up. And my grandfather started farming cotton in Marana, just outside of Tucson. My father went into that business as well. I helped out quite a bit in the summers. Didn't want to do that for a living. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and ended up here. So yeah, I mean, farming was always in, from the history I've read on my family, it's always been in our family, come and gone. But uh, my grandfather started the cotton farming. They do a rotational crop of Durham wheat, which is actually one of the high in-demand wheats. Um, actually, Italy really looks for our Durham wheat because it's extra dry, so it's good for dry pastas. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the big Italian pasta makers seek out Arizona's Durham wheat, and so it, it gets shipped to Italy and then sent back to us in a box. So. <laughs> wow, full circle. Yeah. So did you grow up with cooking, with anybody cooking in the family? Um, we got always, I mean, Sundays... On my mother's side of the family, we always had Sunday afternoon supper. Um, my mother's parents are actually from the Midwest. Grandma was a great cook, so we always spent Sundays eating, you know, pork roast and mashed potatoes and some of those classics. I always was involved with cooking, but never really thought of it as something until, like I said, I kind of got into the industry. Mm -hmm. The other part that we always did was my parents almost every winter would make uh, white corn, green corn tamales. Mm. Um, so they'd make it from scratch and my father would actually grow the corn on the farm and we'd make masa from scratch for that. Mm -hmm. So I wish I'd paid more attention to doing it back then so I could carry it over now. But I do have a little bit of history in helping with that. Mm -hmm. um, so there's always, my great grandmother Pacheco was a great cook as well. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, as a child I'd make cookies and stuff like that. There's a mm -hmm. funny story of I asked my mom to make cookies that recipe had Rice Krispies in it. And my mom said, okay, <laughs> you need to measure the Rice Krispies and make sure there's enough of them. So I got a ruler out and stuck it inside the box. <laughs> and I said, went back to my mom and I said, we got two inches of Rice Krispies. Is that enough? So it's kind of the joke, the thing I remember as a child of yeah. my, some of my first cooking experiences. Yeah, so. well, you've come a long way from that. Yeah, a little bit. So. Was there an expectation in your family that you would continue with the farming business? No, my father never pushed it on me. I think it was kind of pushed on him, and he didn't really want to do it, so he didn't want to do that to us. You know, and now I... You know, what the cotton farming in Arizona is the busiest time of the year is in the middle of the summer when it's 107, mm. 110 degrees. And I saw the long days and being out in the heat and didn't want to do it. But, you know, it's, it's that part of the agriculture is still in my blood as well. No, the funny part is that I didn't, my, a friend of mine that I used to work with would make fun of me that I didn't, I chose not to farm because it was too much work. <laughs> and he said, oh, you made a good decision there. <laughs> and, you know, we were getting up a to go to the farm at four in the morning you know at that time i was the am sous chef at the phoenician so i was getting up at three in the morning to go in at 4 a.m and work 14 hour days and he said oh you really made a wise decision there you got out all that hard work but right. um it's just different hard work N not in the sun all the right time. yeah so when you told your family you wanted to go to culinary school 
were they fine with that? Yeah, they were they were supportive. You know, like I said, I didn't realize that culinary school was even an option. I didn't know that there was school for cooking at the time. Um, I didn't want to move to New York, so that's how I went to find that. And my parents were happy because at the time I was doing some community college and didn't really know what direction I wanted to go. Um, I told my dad I may I'll take a break from going to college for a year, and he said, nope. <laughs> so I continued doing it. And then, I, like I said, I found that culinary school here in Scottsdale, and it was a great, great decision. Did you ever have any second thoughts anywhere along the no, way with that? since then, it's been all I've done, all I know. Yeah. And, you know, haven't cared to do much else. Yeah. You mentioned that you feel like agriculture is still a part of your life. Yeah. So explain that. Well, so now coming back and having the freedom on the menus to bring in some of that heritage of when I first came back from Las Vegas, I you know started researching and finding more local farmers. I, I had started actually a little bit before I'd left to Vegas. There are some small farms doing some tomatoes and microgreens and stuff like that in Phoenix. When I came back, I wanted to focus on that more. It was really trending more is really popular at the time and I want to be part of that so I started looking into it more there's some great farmers I found right away and then I started going to there's a few farmers markets here at the time found a just started researching and finding more people so I found you know Wendell Crow at Crow's Dairy was there selling Chev and some feta cheese and asked if he'd sell it to the restaurant and he said okay and that was actually I found Hayden flour mills at the Scottsdale Farmers Market when they were just getting going. I was really drawn to them because they were using Arizona wheat. And I said, oh, mm. my family grows wheat. So I, I was drawn to them. I met the owner of Hayden Flower Mills and we worked, started working together right away. I, I, so we were the first wholesale account for the goat cheese at Crow's Dairy here. And now he's in almost every restaurant that cares about yeah. their product as much as we do here yeah. in town. So I really started focusing on that. And as much as we could do from the state. I mean, being my family heritage in the state, you know, my family heritage in farming, I want to support these farmers and producers that care enough to do it here in our state. Mm-hmm. So, You know, I've talked to a lot of different chefs and they seem to fall into two camps when I talk to them. Either they're adamantly pro-sourcing locally as much as possible, or others seem almost surprised when I ask them if they do. And, and their answer is usually, well, when we can. You know, like it's sort of an afterthought. What to you are some of the advantages and disadvantages of sourcing locally when, when you're running a restaurant? Well, with the, most of these farmers that we work with now, they don't harvest lettuce until we order it. They don't cut the microgreens until we order them. They, you know, I know that, and I've actually even asked, mentioning, you know, Crow's Dairy and Wendell Crow, you know, so there's times that he's running low on milk to supply everyone. I said, well, there's a lot of people raising goats and doing milk and thinking they want to do goat cheese around here. Why don't you do kind of a conglomerate? I know that California has these conglomerates. And he said, no, I like knowing exactly where my milk, all of my milk's coming from. I know what's in it and what's coming out. And that's, I really appreciate that. It's great that they're as passionate about that as we are passionate about what's being fed to our customers. So, you know, like I said, we work with Bob McClendon just outside of Phoenix here in Peoria. And like I said, we place an order and the lettuce gets cut. Um, So knowing that that freshness is there, that it's not sitting in a warehouse for three, four weeks, a week before we get it, and that it's not over-treated or mistreated, it means a lot to us that we know that sourcing and that that quality is always going to be there. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there any downside to it? 
Our seasons are weird, so the summertime here is uh, we slow down quite a bit, which is a good thing because the local producers aren't able to produce in the summer when it's 100 degrees and here, uh, you know, lettuce isn't growing, <laughs> it won't. So that's the only downside. I mean, occasionally, you know, when you have a big wholesale produce company that you can buy from every day, but and they're getting everything from, you know, the LA market, you know you're always going to get it. I mean, what time it's going to get here for the most part. And so sometimes the downside can be that it's not here when you need it, mm -hmm. um, but you learn your way to work around it. Some of the first farmers I worked here in town, I started using their lettuce and then started coming in brews and then they'd deliver whenever they wanted. And then so I would stop using them. And then I've been able to been, be picky enough that I can find the farmers that I know are going to produce for me and get it to me when I need it. And luckily they're getting, everyone, they're all getting better at it too. That's what the other upside is now as more people care about where their food comes from they're getting better the farmers are also getting better at what they're producing and mm -hmm. when they're producing it and how they're producing it as well so chicken and egg thing are you working with the particular farmers you do because they're growing what you need or are they growing things specifically for you and the needs of the restaurant it can be a little of both. For the most part, you know, we have the items in Arizona that do best on a seasonal basis, so I know what's coming on. I mean, obviously, we have a huge citrus production here in the state, so I know that this time of year, as it's getting colder at night, that's when the citrus is coming on, and I'm going to be having 10 to 12 different varieties of citrus available to us. So mm -hmm. we'll write our menu around that. Like I mentioned, when it's too hot, I know that I'm not going to be getting mixed greens from in-state, or at least the soil-grown mixed greens. There are actually some more hydroponic producers in the state, so I've been able to get locally sourced greens in the state. And so a lot of it, as far as the menu goes, I work my menu around what's being produced. Sometimes now I'm starting to work with lamb and beef producer just from just in Glendale here just outside of town. And it's kind of been a learning relationship with them. They originally reached out to me because they wanted to do some sheep's milk cheeses. They actually came to me through a regular customer that comes in once a week when they're in town. He does a radio broadcast in Chicago. Great voice. He's mm -hmm. uh, Orion Samuelson. He's been doing it for years. And uh, he's a regular here and knows this family farm and they wanted to do sheep's milk cheeses he said would you ask me if i'd be interested in meeting them so of course we did i had lunch with them and they gave me their cheeses and they were okay they said well we got lamb as a byproduct of our cheese making and i said "Ooh, hello <laughs> so um you know we were real excited i started using their lamb almost right away so we were getting the whole lamb from them actually i've got it down now to where we're just getting the saddles of the lamb and they're able to use some of the other products in other areas and then they also at that time said well we're playing around with wagyu beef as well. So the history of their farm, they're actually a uh, Jersey cow dairy farm and the dairy industry is not doing great. So mm -hmm. they've been looking for other sources of income. And so that's why they started playing with the sheep and doing the sheep's milk cheeses. So then they were also playing around with crossbreeding their Jersey cows with Wagyu beef. So they gave me some samples. I was, I thought the Jersey blend on the Wagyu beef was a strange blend because mm -hmm. you don't usually hear that. You know, everyone thinks it's just Angus and right. it was a, go-to blend and um was really good they had some samples we were able to use and it went over really well in the restaurant and that we actually started out with frozen steaks which wasn't my what i wanted to do but um they had some pre-cut t-bones and new york strips and porterhouses and you know the quality was still outstanding and so we worked through their frozen product to where to the point where they were slaughtering steers fresh for us um well almost fresh so and they brought me the first batch something's not right uh, the marbling wasn't there like it was before. So I said to the 
Mark Grovey, the son of the owner of the farm. They said, what's going on? He said, oh, we killed them a little lighter than what we were. The first steaks I got, they'd let the cows, the steers go to about 1,300 pounds, mm -hmm. and they tried going at 1,100 pounds, mm -hmm. and the marbling wasn't there. So it, it's been interesting with them to help them learn. I mean, they didn't even know what to charge me, which was good right. <laughs> for it, and which was somewhat good for me. Um, and so I've kind of been able to help them through their learning of how to raise this beef. Um, so now they're, you know, we, they took a break and said, we need to ramp up to keep up with you and hopefully continue growing. So we took about a year break, year and a half break on the beef. And we're getting to a point now where they, it looks like they're going to be slaughtering one cow a week. And we're going to be getting the, the subprimal cuts, the ribeye, the New York and the beef tenderloins will be exclusive on that selling it and what's really cool is the Roby dairy like i said they're a hundred year old dairy farm but they are almost sustainable in the to the point where they grow a lot of their own feed for their cattle um, they grow their own beets they grow some of their own corn and grains and all on that property and they actually are using their manure to and reselling it too mm -hmm. so it's, it's really cool to go out to the operation which you know it's 15 miles from the restaurant and mm -hmm see their operation and what they're doing and that kind of just fuels the passion for me to be able to use product like that and have farmers there to see their passion and what they're doing for yeah. the cattle well with your family's background i mean it, it gives you a unique perspective on what goes into right. producing everything right no, and that's a lot of what gives me the passion to it. I mean, it's not easy work. Like I said, I didn't want to be a cotton farmer because of the work that goes into it. It's, I, you know, I still watch some, my uncle and my cousin are still doing it with my dad. And, you know, it's a struggle every year and continues to be. And, you know, it's a lot of hard work. These guys put a lot into it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, I want to support them. I want them to survive. I, you know, and we support them as much as we can so that they do survive. So even when it's, you know, going through these trials and tribulations, you know, of them learning how to operate and how to produce for us, it's usually I stick with them. So until they, so they can figure out, like I said, sometimes there's those few that, you know, the frustration and trying to support them gets to the point where you can't, but most of the time I stick with them until they, they figure it out. So let's talk Arizona food. And, you know, as I mentioned, Real Food Traveler, our readers and the listeners of the podcast, when they go travel, they don't want to go to a chain. Right. They want to know what it is to be in that place through the food and the people who create the food and produce it. So what is Arizona cuisine? To me, and I, I say that in that aspect because I think there's... Uh, People think Arizona cuisine, they think of Southwestern and Mexican and chilies and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And to me, that's not what Arizona food is. To me, you know, working with the local products as much as I am, to me, Arizona food is using the bounty that we have, not not having to do too much with it. Um, you know, like I said, we're looking, working around the farmer's schedules on some of these things and doing as much as we can with what we have um, and keeping it simple and letting the products shine mm -hmm. and and that's what Arizona cuisine means to me and of course because we are in the southwest yes chilies do matter we, we do have chilies we do have certain aspects that we will put 
some of those spices and some of those things into it, but that's not what my food is based off of, and that's what I don't I don't think that's what Arizona food is, mm -hmm. cuisine is. I think that Arizona cuisine is people mistake Southwestern for Arizona, and Arizona food is using what we have. You know, I mean, California cuisine was California cuisine because they're using what they had, mm -hmm. and not that far away from producing as much as what California does. Mm -hmm. So that's really what Arizona cuisine means. To me and that there's a lot to offer here um that's like i said with the citrus and the farmers that are doing their own cheeses and grains and that kind of stuff so use a lot of the local grains you know work that into our menus as much as possible mm -hmm. when we can people ask me because i live in colorado they'll say well what's the quintessential colorado food and before i can even answer them which i really don't have an answer for they'll say oh i bet it's rocky mountain oysters isn't it and i <laughs> no. would say no <laughs> No, maybe in the Wild West, but right. no. So if somebody, like I'm about to do, said to you, is there an iconic Arizona dish or certain flavor profile, is there one? I think some of those spices and chilies are somewhat part of our heritage. A lot of it is what Native Americans used to use, so there's a lot of those, you know, and that is the grain and some of the legumes that they're doing and some of the spices. Authentic or iconic to me, being from Tucson, there's a uh, restaurant by the name of El Charo in Tucson that's one of the oldest Mexican restaurants in Tucson. They do a carne seca mm -hmm. where they uh, dry the beef on cages up on the roof of the mm -hmm. restaurant. Every time I go to Tucson still, I, it's where I go. <laughs> I kind of want to go get carne seca. So, mm -hmm. but, and part of that's probably my, part of my family heritage. My mom always makes carne seca at Christmas, you know, and so mm -hmm. it, with the green corn tamales, we always had carne seca, and she didn't dry the meat on the roof, mm -hmm. but she would dry it, roast it, and shred it, in the, and then dry it in the oven. So that's kind of, I think the, some of those chilies, dried beef to me, like that carne seca is kind of a, mm -hmm. something that's authentic to me. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's probably different for a lot of people. There's a lot of different heritage here with the Native Americans and Spanish, and so I, I think that answer is probably different for a lot of other chefs and for a lot of other people that really have a deep heritage in the state. Okay. So when you came to work, well, e either time at um, Hermosa, was, was Lon's and Lon's Last Drop, which is the bar, mm -hmm. were those already here? Yep. Okay. Right. And have been here for a long time, I think over 30 years before I got here the first time. So I noticed on the website that it talks about globally inspired Arizona fair. So what do you mean by that? Well, the reasoning we went with calling it that is that we're not, you know, like I said, I'm not stuck in using chilies because we're in Arizona. And I like all cuisines. I mm -hmm. appreciate all cuisines. I mean, culinary school, you're kind of taught some of the classical French techniques. And that's where we came. You know, you're going to find braised short ribs, which is a classical, you know, preparation mm -hmm. of braising. And all the way to the point where we have you know, a yuzu soy sauce with one of our signature appetizers, the salt-seared tuna, um, is what the yuzu soy sauce, and we do a togarashi cracker with that. So mm. we didn't want to lock ourselves into being, you know, we called it Arizona cuisine. Well, like you said, what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, globally inspired means that we're not, as much as I try to pull from within the state, we're not trapped in only doing that. So we're mm -hmm. pulling from everywhere, and, um, you know, when we're not sourcing locally we're sourcing the best we can find for instance right now we're getting uh i've been looking for a great fresh shrimp product and we're able to fly fresh florida gulf shrimp in right now so mm -hmm. we do that um we have a raw crudo dish or a sashimi dish that we're doing with uh, kona kampachis we're able to fly kampachi in for from hawaii so um 
you know, Bronzino, we're getting straight from, flown in straight from Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when chanterelle mushrooms are in season, we have to use them. So mm-hmm. those are getting, coming from the Pacific Northwest. So we tried to find the right authentic Arizona cuisine. Is that what we called it? Yeah. <laughs> um, a globally inspired Arizona fair. I mean, we wanted to find a way to kind of capture everything that we like to do here. In your role, are you able to have complete freedom over what you have on the food and beverage menus? Yeah, for the most part. What I do try to do with our menu is being a long-standing restaurant with a neighborhood that comes in to eat and, you know, long-standing customers that have been coming for years. And that was one of my challenges when I first came the first time um, was to change the menu and do things the way I wanted without scaring those customers away that have been coming for 20, 30 years already. Mm -hmm. So what we've gone to now is I have the right side of the menu that has our classics, which is our braised short rib, our filet mignon, our salmon, you know, roasted chicken. And then on the other side of the, on the left side of the menu, we have a two-page menu, is our seasonal side where we are able to do more of the local stuff. So our local lamb from Roe area is there. Some of the other items like the kampachi and the Florida Gulf shrimp are on that side of the menu because those are going to go out of season here soon. And we'll change those up and we hope to change those, you know, about once a month. That last side of the menu will change. Um, and then the classic side of the menu will change a couple times a year. We just kind of change the sets or tweak them a little bit. But mm-hmm. the staple items, the proteins that people are looking for, for the most part on that classic side will stay the same. And then we have a little more freedom with that other side. So mm-hmm. trying to reach out to the younger crowd that wants to do more of the tasting menus and stuff like that while keeping our longstanding customer happy at the same time. Okay. So that, that leads perfectly into a, another question I have. I mean, this, this is a, a restaurant and you mentioned that a lot of the neighbors, because we are in a residential area here, will come in, but you're part of the inn, and you're the logical place where inn guests come to eat. Does that change your decisions in, in what you create, knowing that you're sort of part of a bigger whole? Not that much. I mean, again, I think keeping all of our hotel customers falls into that aspect of keeping our longstanding customers happy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you've got hotel customers that are coming from all over the world or over the country or you know may not be that adventurous you got to keep some things somewhat approachable at Mm -hmm. times so i think that that part of being part of the hotel you know falls into some of those classics so we do high quality with our classics but then still able to do fun and more interesting stuff as well Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of times we're a small hotel so a lot of times a customer that's coming to the hotel is coming because of the restaurant or knows about the restaurant and they're coming for the food so we're able to not have to shy away from having too much fun or doing too any interesting things at the menu because our customer is looking for some of them yeah now this is a historic property are you conscious in your decisions about what to create on the menu to sort of pick up the vibe of the place I guess that was probably one of the other reasons that I focused on the local products so much mm-hmm. is that with the long-standing heritage of this being a 80-plus-year-old property, that it only made sense for us to go locally. So this is such a long-standing local icon that mm-hmm. we should be supporting local in everything we do. So, you know, and there's those Spanish touches to it and those old-school touches. So that's kind of how I do the menu is, you mm-hmm. know, involve as much locally as I can with a few influences from here and there. 
obviously the artistic part of the hotel and our lawn McGargy being artistic so we make our plates as beautiful as possible as well so i think that our food and our menu really revolves around in that aspect the history of what the Hermosa Inn is mm-hmm. and will you explain a little bit for our listeners who lawn was uh, lawn McGargy was a cowboy artist came from the east coast settled here did a lot of different things but um, ended up being a painter and artist a lot of the artwork throughout the property here is his he built the Hermosa Inn as Casa Hermosa is what he called it as his home and residence and his art studio he ended up building a few rooms to help pay for the upkeep of it as well story is is that it turned into kind of a party house back (laughs) in the day Uh, the renovations in the 90s and obviously he lost it but i mean there's still original adobe throughout the property and some of those original touches in it history has burned down been rebuilt renovated have added more rooms you know, we've really found a lot of the history that was lawn inside here. And there's stories of boxing and gambling and <laughs> drinking. And where I was going was that when they did some of the renovations in the back here in the 90s, they found tunnels that went out of the property that we can only imagine were getaway tunnels when mm-hmm. pro- during prohibition right. from the sheriff, from gambling, from who knows what. Mm-hmm. So I'm really cool history of this property. That's cool. The Longargian as well. Do you have any events throughout the year, kind of annual events that are culinary based? Yeah, we're doing several different things now. Um, we do a spring and a fall harvest dinner, um, which that is, uh, we just did one of them. And I try to do 100% local product when we do these harvest dinners. Um, so we partner with one of the local wineries, which we've got several great relationships with now. And then do 100% local product with uh, local food with local wines. We did a five course wine paired dinner um, just last week um, with Page Spring Cellars, which is just, and uh, Burning Tree Cellars, which are both just from Sedona, Cottonwood area in Arizona, producing some fantastic wines and some really cool stuff. We're doing another one in the spring with uh, Pillsbury Winery, which again, I have a very great relationship with uh, Sam Pillsbury. And then we're also throughout the year, we'll do beer dinners. Um, Our bar, we focus on local beers. I've done several beer collaborations with a couple of the different breweries here in town. We've got a whiskey dinner coming up with Delbach Whiskey. They're uh, Hamilton Distillers out of Tucson. So I found the whiskey that was being produced in Tucson. So Mm -hmm. being from Tucson, I was excited about Mm -hmm. it. And they're actually doing some really cool stuff. And we have our own private barrel from them that we went down to Tucson and tasted through five different barrels and chose which one we liked the most. And what's nice for us being a smaller property as they do smaller barrels of 15 gallon whiskey barrels so mm-hmm. we're able to do that we bought the barrel and then actually they gave us the barrel and we i gave it to one of the local breweries mm-hmm. and they aged uh, imperial stout in that so we've got cool. a imperial stout that's been aged in that whiskey barrel so yeah we've got the whiskey dinner coming up we've got a tequila dinner coming up and then there's another distillery here in town that we're doing an event with them always kind of once a month something going on and are those events listed on the website so that people visiting could try to time things Uh, they're all listed on our website and we've also got several different art events but usually those are art based and not food based yeah i heard those art events are kind of a way to bring in lon's heritage right that's the history of his art yeah artistic heritage so it really you know like I said, we're trying to tie in the food and the yeah. art into the property That's as much as we can. Cool. So just to bring things full circle as we wrap up, I don't know if you have kids or anything, but I, you've got people who work for you who you're bringing up in, in the business. In what ways are you bringing in your family's long, long history here and your passion for food? 
My cooks see my passion for the local product. My chefs do as well. A lot of the cooks when I'm bringing them in now are excited to hear how much we are doing locally and how much we are supporting locally. So that's what I'm able to teach a lot of even my chefs and sous chefs of my chef's cuisine now came from Delaware. So he didn't mm. had no idea of what the offerings in Arizona were until he came here. And I mean, we, I don't write the menus alone, right? We write the menus as a team. So he, when he first came on, it was somewhat of a challenge writing menus together because I'm always trying to at least part of every dish is going to have something local if we can. Mm -hmm. He and I, it took us a little while to click on writing menus together because he was over here and I was over here, but now he realized where I'm at and he understands the product and what we're trying to do. All of our chefs understand that and really support it. I think, you know, as passionate and excited as I am to get lettuce from a few miles away and beef and lamb from a few miles away, they are as well. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned my children. I do have two young boys, five and eight. They enjoy cooking a little bit. I don't quite have the patience for them right now. <laughs> I teach them as much as I'd like. I want them as involved as possible. Mm -hmm. But they go on farm trips with me. Um, mm -hmm. I've done a few trips. Uh, I mentioned Hayden Flour Mill. So in the uh, East Valley and Queen Creek and those areas, there's some great products being produced down there. There's a olive oil, the Queen Creek Olive Mill being produced. And I mentioned Hayden Flour Mills is a base down there now. And they moved the mill down to Queen Creek um, on Sosaman farms where the wheat's being grown. So they're growing it and, and milling it um, basically in the same area. And both my boys have taken a couple trips to those farms with me because I want them to, to appreciate it as much as I do. And they know grandpa's a farmer and go to the farm with grandpa. So they see that part of it. And I want them to see, you know, we're um, passionate and using those farmers because of our family heritage and what the final product can be. So my, my boys have gone out there, out to a few of the farms with me. They went to the goat cheese producer with me. Um, actually, when, just when we moved back from Vegas, I took them both out there and they got to play with the goats. And <laughs> um, he was actually milking the goat straight into my little one's mouth and stuff. So it was, it was kind of, of fun. Um, so, or squirting him with it anyways. Yeah. But um, so no, I, I want my boys to appreciate food. And so far, for the most part, they do. My younger one doesn't as much as I would like, mm -hmm. but he'll get there, I'm sure. Yeah. Whether they go into this industry or not is up to them. You know, like I said, my dad didn't push me into this. And like I said, it's you know, it's a lot of hard work. So if they don't want to do it, I don't blame them. I'm mm -hmm. hoping they they're get into tech and make their money off of technology. So, but um, hopefully take care of me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I I like them to appreciate it. Actually, I do. Uh, we go down to Wilcox over Labor Day weekend, and Sam Pillsbury does a harvest festival down there. Um, people go and camp out on the vineyard at the winery, and he's had. Uh, last year it was four chefs go down and cook and about a hundred people show up for it and so I take the boys down with us and we camp out on the vineyard and you know they get to run around and play around there while I cook but it's you know relaxing fun atmosphere and so I, I want them as part much a part of what I do as possible yeah as well. well even if they end up being tech wizards it's still certainly beneficial for them to know where their food comes from yep, and absolutely family's history and all that tonight I'm my husband and I have the great pleasure of, of dining at Lons tonight, so um, I'm really looking forward to that. And I'll share some photos and impressions about that with with our readers along with this podcast. I 
guess that's it. Is there is there anything else that you want our readers and listeners to know about Arizona cuisine or about lawns or about you? No, I mean, I think we've hit most of it. Um, like I said, that, that people mistake Arizona cuisine for Southwestern, and Arizona is the third largest agricultural state in the country. A lot of people don't realize we're not just a desert here. We're, there's a lot, lot more going on than just uh, saguaro cactuses and dirt. Actually, even living in Vegas for five years, you know, that's... That's a sandy desert. There's not much that grows there. So I, um, living there gave me the appreciation for what Arizona's desert in Arizona is. It's so beautiful here and so much grows here that, you know, there's a lot more for us to play with too. And there's a lot of chefs that are doing some great things. I've got a friend that's really into the foraging and doing that kind of stuff. So I follow him and I don't know when he sleeps, but he's going <laughs> up north and foraging mushrooms and all watercress and all kinds of stuff. And I mentioned him just because he great to see him supporting what Arizona cuisine is as well. And so I think there's a lot more of that with that same kind of mindset that Arizona has a lot more to offer than people realize. Perfect. Well, again, thank you for your time, for meeting with me today, and for giving our listeners and our readers a little glimpse into what Arizona food really is. Because I really, to be honest, would have said the same thing, that it's you know more southwestern than being a lot of chilies and stuff. So I'm looking forward to finding out and discovering it for myself, too, and on behalf of our readers. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Pleasure.